What's up, friends? I am Kent Lapp, and welcome to this episode of the KLP, where we give you long-form, in-person conversations that explore and inform. Today, I'm excited to give you my conversation with Guy Goldstein. Guy's the founder and CEO of Writer Duet, a simple and powerful scriptwriting tool that allows scriptwriters and screenwriters to collaborate, outline, create, and edit virtually in real time. It's pretty sweet, and if you're in this space, you probably already know about it, as it's the gold standard in that world, which was a world I didn't know anything about. We had a great time talking through Guy's story, what led to the founding of Writer Duet, the common denominators of successful screenwriters, switching between the brain's business mode and creative mode, some of his favorite business principles, and a bunch more. Be sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already, and with that, I give you my conversation with Guy Goldstein. Please enjoy. Was it you that said you had your office over in this part of town? I drove by by it. Yeah, oh, did you? Like a mile okay. Away. Okay. Nice. Do you miss it? I miss the office. I don't miss driving to the office. That's why. Oh, I learned. really? Like okay. this whole quarantine has been a relief, honestly, for people like me who don't like leaving their houses. Yeah. <laughs> the office itself it's is so high. true. It's so true. How far did you have? To the office, like uh, what part of town do you live? I live down south, um, Thanks, so like twenty minutes. Oh, uh, uh, okay. Which is okay. used to not be a big deal, but now that I don't drive anymore, it's like I have to leave my house and go right? somewhere. It's like such a weird exactly. Concept. Yeah, that's like, so true. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't miss. Uh, we, I, we, my office situation changed in the last year, and now I have like ten minutes instead of an hour. Praise God. Yeah. I mean, that. Oh man, spend an hour, hour and a half on the road one way to the office is it's miserable, you know. So. And working from home takes that to a whole nother level. (laughs) Guy Goldstein, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time, man. Um, All right, so I'd love to hear about Writer Duet, how you got into that, kind of where that started and everything. Uh, But first, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about you. Were you born and raised here, or how'd you get to Austin? I'm from upstate New York. I, no way. Yeah. Where? Uh, Schenectady area. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm from Rochester area. Yeah. Yeah. So I think all the smart people... No, just kidding. Um, but <laughs> all the small, smart people leave. That's what happens. That's true. <laughs> uh, I jetted to California and did tech there for a while. Okay. Uh, after college, I built compilers. So I was like kind of deep tech. What's that? Uh, compilers are like uh, basically the uh, converter of human-ish languages to zeros and ones, essentially. So oh, okay. you write in, you know, C or JavaScript or whatever, and then it goes to bytecode and stuff like that. Oh, okay. So I used to build like pretty deep tech stuff. I was really into that space. And uh, as a background, I had also been built, uh, been acting and been trying to get into writing and did a lot of improv and stuff. My sister is a, a musical writer. Oh, so okay. I just really was loving the art space. And yeah. uh, coincidentally, I got some time at my work where I had a little space to start writing. And I got really into that, thought maybe I could either try to be a professional writer or at least get something in that space going and uh, accidentally built a product that was uh, the jumping off point for Writer Duet. It was not Writer Duet, though, and okay. I'd love to tell that story, too. Yeah, yeah. So wh- how long ago was Connected in New York? Uh, I left there probably 15 years ago. Okay. So like when you're low 20 or? Yeah, when I went off to college. I went to Carnegie okay. Mellon University. Oh, okay. Okay, gotcha. And then California, were you, still, were you in the Valley or where were you at there? I was in Santa Barbara. It's like okay. the small, sleepy L.A. Oh, okay. Yeah, nice. Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear the story about accidentally getting into the um, what led to Writer Duet then. Yeah, so I think every entrepreneur who, who feels like they have a great idea can't tell that it's not uh, in the beginning. Like you get that urge to build something that you think is useful and, and maybe other people give you encouragement. And 
I built something called Read Through, uh, which was a script, uh, either computer version uh, where audio, um, sorry, computer voices will read your script back to you with different mm. characters for each voice. Or you can have a set of actors will uh, perform each character online. They can do them separately. It splices it all together, normalizes the audio. And you have like a music, a movie version or audio version of your movie. And I built that because I and three people liked the idea. And so I spent <laughs> like two and a half years on that. Uh, what, what was the plan? Like, okay, you'd have a movie. And what you built would would be able to read the movie to someone, or was it meant to read a screenplay or to read, you know, like like a book or a writing? Read a screenplay, exactly. Okay. So it's okay. basically text to speech of your script before okay. either you know you yourself would listen to it, and I would use it to listen when I was in the car because I'm living an hour and a half north of LA, so I would drive to LA, listen to my screenplay each way, make notes, make the changes when I got yeah, home, sure. or listen to my friend's scripts or professional uh, movies, and. It has some some ideas that were good to it. I think the value is there, and we still actually have that as a component of Redder Duet, but it could not have been a sustainable business. There okay. was no business model that would have ever worked. Okay. Uh, and the classic thing you do is when you don't have a business model, you just add more features until you have a business <laughs> model. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So it's been a long time doing that. Uh, and then the Redder Duet thing, like it's a, it's, I wish it were a smarter story where I thought of something brilliant, like, oh, this is the one. And actually, I still thought read-through was going to be something. Uh, but my friends uh, built Firebase, um, which is, was later acquired by Google, and it's this awesome product that does real-time data syncing. And uh, one of them was coming to Austin. I just happened to be here, which is also a funny story how I got to Austin. But I just happened to be in Austin, and my friend was coming to South by Southwest, and he had just they just built the beta of Firebase. And I was like, oh, I'll do you a huge favor, and I'll make a demo version of you know, South by Southwest has film and stuff. So I'll make a film related real time product just to show off how cool Firebase is. Okay. And, and what is Firebase? It's a real time data syncing platform. Okay. So it's part of Google now, but basically what it does is it gives you really simple API to use and, and these are all jargony terms, but right. web sockets and things like that. Yep. So basically okay. real time syncing on the web made really simple. Hmm. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, screenwriting software is largely not synchronous at the time. Um, there were some attempts at it, but none of them were good. And I thought this would be just a cool demo of how great Firebase is. And it's in the screenwriting space and movie space. So everyone will be excited at South by Southwest. Uh, what it turned out is Firebase was already taking off and he did not need my help at that moment. Uh, but I got to build a demo and uh, literally just he had his badge. Uh, he was, you know, their participant in some way at South by and he was uh, leaving after the tech part. So he just gave me his badge. I looked close enough to him and sorry, South by, I just snuck into <laughs> all the films and short films and stuff with his badge. What year was this? Like this, how long ago? 2013. That's oh, okay. when I first so some time it. ago. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's been a slow grind. Like I'm not the, you know, the classic overnight success takes 10 years. Mm -hmm. I'm like, uh, not overnight success takes 10 years, just yeah. like a mildly successful thing. Um, and uh, I just stuck in, talked to people there, and instantly realized I had built the wrong product with Read Through and Fire Duet was actually useful. Uh, and it was just cool. I just thought it was cool. And that's probably the better story than Read Through. I thought, oh man, this is going to solve the world's problems of listening to scripts. And Fire Duet was, this will be fun. And yeah. that's the one that worked out. So I, I don't think crazy? there's any huge logic to it. Wow. Do you find that, is that common in the tech space where someone stumbles upon something like that? Or is that pretty exceptional? I, I suspect it's common. I certainly, that's. You, it's hard to know because you only hear the good stories, right? That's right. You hear yeah, the good ones true. and success bias or whatever. So you wind up thinking that that's how things work. In reality, most accidents are also bad. Like mm -hmm. most things are bad. <laughs> most, no one, very few people are successful in a way that's meaningful, including myself. Yeah. Uh, so 
I think that if it had gone like differently where read through had been successful, I'd be telling the story of how I was brilliant and thought it all through perfectly like Steve true. Jobs. Yeah, so it's just it's it is, it, the one that worked, worked. Yeah, but you still have to be like open to past pre- presenting themselves and like having the wherewithal and the energy to, and just the, I guess, the optimism to go ahead and follow the path, right? Because that thing of like the opportunity presenting itself, you sort of summing into it. I mean, that is a thing. Like a couple of years ago, I actually started an Evernote on that exact principle because they kept running into it with various people where they had like, they were, you know, had a big success or something, even like famous people that I've never met. And I just heard the story, you know, however I've heard the story through a book or whatever. Um, and I've tried to log those things because that, that is like, it does happen, but you have to be ready for that opportunity. You know what I mean? You have to be aware of it and be open to it and then, and then follow that opportunity. So I think your story is just another one in those exact same lines. Yeah. The lesson that is real is the people who say cool are not the people who matter. The people who use your product matter. Uh, and not very many people were using read-through. A lot of people were saying it's cool. Instantly launched right duet. People were like, well, I want to use that. And they were mad when it didn't work, not they were just, you know, interested in the idea. They they yeah. were like, I need this thing. And the the pressure of building something very quickly and putting it out and having people who are mad when it doesn't work is is brilliantly useful. Like I think the idea of keeping things until they're right or adding features until people want them is is going to lead you in a poor place. Mm-hmm. Building something that is useful enough that people are mad that it's bad is what you want to do in my mm-hmm. opinion early on mm-hmm. um, unless you have a lot of money. Um, right. So I just put it out there and like the the moment I knew that it would be successful, knew in a <laughs> we'll see sense still. Mm-hmm. But uh, the moment I was like, this is it, was when we erased every single apostrophe in a professional writer's script because he kept using it. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I guess this is it. Cause we just he'd been using it for like three weeks, he's a professional writer. Every apostrophe in the script was gone because they were like multi-byte and we did something stupid <laughs> with multi-byte characters. And uh and I offered to like go through a script. He's like, no, nah, it's good. I spent a couple hours with you. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so, so this was a professional writer and something in writer duet, like a code, did what you told it to or whatever. But the unknown byproduct of that was it, it erased all of his apostrophes in, yep. in the thing. And then he let you know, hey, this is an issue because I'm using it this much and this matters to me. Yeah, well, I mean, he instantly told me because, you know, especially early, if you aren't friends with your customers, it's really yeah. tough, especially yeah. as a one person company because. You are a one-person company. There's very few things you can do, and you have to choose pretty selectively. Mm-hmm. So my choice was I will get to know every – not just professionals, but basically anyone who wants to use this product. I will just get to know them, get to know their problems, care a lot about them. Uh, and I think that probably is why he stuck around more than the product being so useful. I think he knew that I cared and knew that I would figure it out. And and next time he had something that was the opposite of a problem, was like a, a good idea or something. And he, and he had those too, like where he had feature requests, I would just do them. Okay. Uh, so I think that's probably more than the product itself being so great kept him. But uh, that had to be there too. Like he had to want the product to be successful, to stick around through the really stupid shit that happens. Right. Yes. Because there's going to be stupid shit that happens, right? That's just part of it. So going back to when you were in California, you're doing your side project at the time, which which turned out to not, not be a great idea. You're just doing that, what, on nights and weekends? Because you had another job in the, in, the, in the meantime? No, I'm way too uh, driven for that. And that's a good and bad thing. So I just quit my job as soon as I thought this was a real thing. Oh, and, okay. And uh, took my, at that time, copious life savings and <laughs> spent it all. And, and halfway through, I'm like, hey, there's a rule of thumb that I have. That I don't know if it's, it's a good one or not, but it's, 
take the most money this thing could possibly cost to get to the point that, you know, you know it's either successful or not, uh, or it's at least the next phase or not. Take the absolute most money, double that, and then double that again, and then you might actually have <laughs> enough money to do it. Uh, I don't think I really thought it through at the time, but that's what it cost. Uh, yeah. To realize it was a bad idea. That's the worst part. Okay. Is that's how much it costs to get to the point when I could look and say, okay, well, writer duets, the thing. And I still look back. I, I don't know. I don't think I ever would have noticed that it was a bad idea. I would have just run out of money. Uh, so okay. that's the scary thing. I, I I, the the advice is to not do what I did, so it's hard to yeah. tell what the right version is. I got lucky that yeah. the second thing I built was good. A lot of times, like actually my friends at Firebase, um, who again came very successful, sold to Google. Uh, I, I think it was like number six product ish for them um, that they had built together, just the two of them, because they wanted wow. to build stuff together. And you know, you could look at each one and see, you know, each one's getting a little better, but not really. Like yes, they were, but also. They just got kind of, you know, lucky plus smart, mm-hmm. uh, plus, you know, timing and everything yeah. all together. And that's a real thing, right? I mean, that's, you need that luck and, and smart and timing. You need those things to come together. And, and hardworking. And that's the, that's Absolutely. the thing I would definitely say with those guys. I remember probably they're the more inspirational story in this whole thing. I'll just talk about them the whole time. Yeah. But they were like, you know, I'm not going to say how broke they were, but yeah. I remember, uh, they were like, you know, it was tough. And, and I was never that situation because I, I think the, the good version of my story is I saved so much money that I could make a really, really big mistake for a really, really long time uh-huh. and learn okay. everything the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, okay. So you're at South by, this is in 13, 2013, and you created this kind of demo that actually people started to use, and then you started to interact with those people and give them more things that they were asking for, and then just Writer Duet just sort of took off from there? Yeah, very, very slowly. Like I said, yeah. I mean, it's 2013, so it's not an overnight success anymore. Sure. Uh, yeah. And it just took a while it it was always the combination of features you know some level of marketing but mostly just uh caring about the problem space Mm -hmm. a lot that made it successful like there's no one feature probably that was the thing but there was a lot of listening to people and knowing that they had a real thing they were trying to achieve in their life and trying to make their thing as true as i could i couldn't get their movie produced but I could make the process of them getting to the place where maybe it'll be produced. Maybe it will just be a fun project they did. Uh, so I could focus on their, their journey and probably the human element was so much more important than my tech skills, even though I'm probably not the greatest mm. human, uh, but I certainly cared a lot about them. And that mm-hmm. probably was the thing that was more important than I coded something really fast. Ah, okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a big takeaway there for sure. Um, what brought you to Austin then? Or what, uh, what point did you move to Austin? I was just driving around the country. I was, this is literally my, I uh, tell the story of my emotional distress of my life or not, but I was. Uh, Go for it. We're up for it if you are. <laughs> all right. Uh, shout out to all the ladies who have there have loved. Um, so I <laughs> was almost married, did not get married, unfortunately, at the time. And I uh, decided to just jet from California. I was doing the startup of read through at the time. And I was like, well, I can be anywhere anyway. I just packed up. Well, I didn't pack up most of my stuff. I gave away most of my stuff, <laughs> packed up the things my mom wanted, sent those to her. Everything I owned at the time uh, was in my compact you know, car and just drove around the country with my dog for 10 months. Oh, I had wow. no plan. I had no idea what I was doing. I was coding probably half the day and driving or touring or wherever half the day, just messing around. And it's sort of, it wasn't the most fun I've ever had in my life because I was a mentally you know, not in a place where I could have fun, but it was one of the cooler things I've done. And I think it led to the space 
to try new things, which is very hard when you're in a startup. So I think I was lucky that that happened. Mm -hmm. Not because I could, I I wasn't so self-aware that I could look and see my startup was failing, but I was self-aware enough to know that I could do whatever I wanted and this was fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even if I wasn't enjoying every moment of it, I was like, you know, I can fool around. I can try new things Mm -hmm. because no one cared. No one was really paying us money. There's a little bit of money coming into read through. Like I would, I think I had 10 buck a month subscription, like 10 people are paying for it. I was like, yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Um, but it was a lot of freedom to not just fail, but try things and not even know if I had failed or not, just like poke at things and put mm-hmm. them out there. And that part was cool. I think I would do that part pretty similarly where I just tried a bunch of stuff in the beginning and one of them happened to be successful. Ah, okay. So when you're 10 months driving around the country, you said coding half the day. At that point, you're coding read-through or what are you coding? Read-through, yeah. So uh, read-through until I was in Austin and I just fell in love with the city, by the way. It's this yeah. crazy cool place. I was just here... I thought for a few days, uh, turned into a week, turned into a month, turned into, uh, I guess out of the 10 months, it was four months in Austin. Okay. And I left. Um, but then I came back as soon as I finished my trip. I was like, oh, this is the spot for me. Uh, but I was just here and I was staying, you know, random people like couch surfing houses, <laughs> uh, hostels, anywhere I could get my dog in. Uh, I learned there was a Motel 6 10% off discount. I joke because I said I had a lot of money and I did, but it goes. You spend it. Like sure, that's, absolutely. That's I started true. with two and a half. No, I've worn the three and a half years. I didn't need any money for three and a half plus years, mm. plus the money for the startup, like tech stuff. Mm. And I definitely spent it. And yeah. I I have been very broke since then. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, is South by what brought you to Austin? Is that when was that your first ex- time you experienced Austin? Yeah, I had never okay. heard of it. I, like I knew there was a capital city called Austin, mm-hmm. and I thought it was just this weird place between Dallas and San Antonio. And it turns out it was the good place between Dallas and San Antonio. The rest, Dallas, Dallas is boring as hell. Uh, sorry, Dallas. <laughs> I totally agree. Austin's really special. What was it about Austin that attracted you and you decided to kind of stay here? Uh, there were probably four things, but the easiest one was the people. Um, the people are very, not just friendly, because friendly is you know available a lot of places, and that's great, and I love that. But they were friendly and interesting and interested in things. So there were a lot of people who had both their own perspectives and things to add and cared about what other people were thinking and doing, Mm -hmm. which is not found in a lot of, especially startup and techie places. People get very self-absorbed and it was a really open, interested culture that wanted to like talk and experiment, think about things. Uh, And there's really, as well as being really, really nice people uh, Mm -hmm. here. And that's some of it's, you know, again, you can find nice people anywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, it also is one of the most dog-friendly places I've ever been, and I'm oh, obsessed yeah? with my dog. So he was, he and I were just chilling at Zilker Park every day. It had nice. Wi-Fi at Zilker Park at the time, so I was coding okay. at Zilker all day. He was playing all day. <laughs> oh, that's very cool. I did, that's, this is the first I've heard that Austin is very dog-friendly. I'm not shocked to hear it. Uh, someone this week uh, described Austin as being radically optimistic. Do you see that? Do you see that in the tech scene? Um, yes, but there is so much pessimism in the world, it's hard to see that sometimes. Okay. Uh, I think there is a lot of underlying optimism. Like people want there to be things, but at the top level, especially in startup, uh, there's a lot of jadedness, especially with like, you know, uh, not to say underrepresented, because that is a part of it, but it's people who aren't advantaged um, in tech, especially. Mm-hmm. So I am very advantaged in this. Like I am both, you know, educationally advantaged, happen to have the right friends, uh, happen to be in the right circles and had some money. Uh, Like all these things lined up to make my life massively easier. 
And even then it was hard, but I was just kind of, I, I don't, I can never empathize fully with someone who doesn't have those advantages, who can't mm-hmm. walk into a VC room and look and act the part. Yeah. And I think that part makes it really not sad, but there's a lot of work to be done to make the optimism real. Uh, oh, okay. The optimism exists, but boy, do we need to do work to make it so everyone gets to realize that optimism instead of it being, it sounds really good until you've struggled for six months or years yeah. and you're making no traction. No one not only wants to help you, but no one believes that you will be successful. Maybe you're optimistic yourself, but there are people who are, who are just looking at you as you're not one of the crew. So mm-hmm. I think that's a disappointing part about, uh, especially VC. And I don't mind, v- I like VCs. I, I don't, I wanted their money for a long time. Mm-hmm. I didn't get it. And now I'm glad I did not get it. Oh, really? Uh, but I think if I could change things about the startup world, there are many to be changed, especially, you know, in Austin as anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So did you say that you, you, there are a lot of founders in the startup world in Austin that are not advantaged, that don't have the connections, that don't have the education or the background? On the- Absolutely. I mean, that's okay. true. That's true everywhere. I mean, Austin sure. is, is probably an attractive place for people like me who have a lot of those things, mm-hmm. but it's still just a city and there's still a lot of smart, nice people who don't have that background. And I don't in any way pretend I'm like, hey, I'm the, you know, I'm going to, the white savior mentality. I'm just going to come in and know the right things to do to fix it. I just try to acknowledge that I and a lot of people are very advantaged in this thing. And I like hanging out with the people who aren't. Um, Uh, And I don't know if I'm ever going to help any of them, um, but I certainly like those people. And I like that they're trying and going through a much more struggle. They are optimistic to go back to that thing. Mm -hmm. But boy, do we need more than optimism uh, yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. I love that you like hanging out with the people that don't have the advantages maybe that you have or that other people have. I think that speaks a lot for your character, man. Um, I'm going to also I, backtrack and say I like hanging out with the advantaged people yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. But do you think that the... Um, I feel like if you... It, it sounds like you've... It hasn't always just been like... You know, I mean, you've gone through you've gone through difficult times, right? And through some struggles and stuff like that. And is it through that that has kind of given you this maturity to reach out to those or spend time with those that don't have all the advantages going their way as well? Is that, is that where that come from? Or is that just your personality? Oh, uh, man. I think it comes from guilt. So that's okay. where a lot of good things can come <laughs> from, I guess, sometimes. Uh, it comes from just, the, yeah, yes, the struggle. And yes, realizing that I went through the struggle even though I had a lot of the advantages, it was still so hard. I think that does help. Like, I think if it had been easy the whole time, it would have been a little bit harder to see how hard it is for other people. So I'm glad I went through that in that yeah. sense. Um, I, I think the real thing, if I think about like my human life, of uh, what I'm trying to achieve here on earth, uh, is helping other people pursue their passion. Like screenwriting is that. Like Most people who will try to write a screenplay will never be produced, but that doesn't okay. matter to them. They might want to be produced, but that's not the reason they're doing it. They're doing it because they love something. Okay. And they're trying to create something of value to themselves and hopefully to other people. Uh, startups are the same thing. Like We love something. We think it's, it's valuable to us. We want it to become real. And we try and often Mm -hmm. we succeed to a degree, but don't ever reach that thing. But that's okay. Like you don't have to be like, I have a little rule of thumb. If I'm going to start something, I have to be okay if it fails. Mm -hmm. Like I can't start something that I know that if it fails, I'm like, well, that's, that was it. There was a waste of time. I'd be like, well, it was a good, it was a good run either way. I I would like them to succeed. That's always Mm -hmm. more fun. Um, And so the same thing, even if you go back back, I used to build compilers, which are again, things that help people code um, that let them code and, and do that more conveniently. So, uh, as a general rule, I think creativity and people pursuing their passions is the thing that matters most worldly to me here. So the people who have the most advantages are already doing that. 
And so it's just not that interesting. Like if, if you're doing it and I can help you, like that's more interesting than if you're doing it and you seem like you're good. So I don't yeah. know if I'm such a nice person. I don't think that's it. It's just, I like, you know, not necessarily problem solving, but I like helping things come to existence. Yeah. I love that. How, how old were you when you realized that you wanted a future in tech or were good at tech or could like be good with computers, like that type of thing? Like, were you always just sort of techie in that regard or? I I think I realized it probably, uh, my family has a a small business uh, that we did that still is going on. And so I, my mom, such a great, praise God, I was really happy that she did this, uh, bought me a laptop so I could code our website. And oh, really? what it turned out is I hated it, okay. uh, but um, I liked the idea of it. I liked the part about messing around with computers, but it got me going. And one of my sister, who probably will tell you she's not interested in tech, uh, was coding our website. Okay. But she did way more than I did. Yeah. Um, but uh, that got me the jumping off point. So I'm very thankful that yeah. I, was, I was like 12 or 13. And I then went uh, to school. I was, uh, I was homeschooled. And so I mm. went to community college instead of high school, basically. And I could take whatever classes I wanted. So I like took all the computer science classes they oh, had yeah? at the college. And that got me a pretty good starting point. I see. Yeah, absolutely. Now, why was it that you didn't like to code the website? Um, because it's a lot of work. <laughs> uh, no, Fair I, answer. I think the, the simpler reason is the interesting parts of technology for people like me um, are not doing it. It's the thinking about how it will be done. And what it turns out is that's uh, in normal web development, a lot of it's doing it. Yeah. Uh, and that's an interesting problem for startups. And I think a lot of people, you get this kind of escapism to the next thing. Like you're always thinking about the next feature because that's the next, next problem to solve, right? Mm-hmm. That's why a lot of the startup people are problem solvers. And uh, what you find is in doing the business in the beginning, it's all that. It's all the problem solving. It's all you don't know what's next. You're making something new. And that stays true for quite a while, including in the you know bug fixing phase, including in the marketing and customer support. It's still problem solving. It's still interesting. Uh, we hit the point relatively recently where it's less problem solving and more execution mm-hmm. on a regular basis. And it really is different. And the annoying thing is that's the part that's actually the successful part. Like As long as you're problem solving all the time, you're probably not super successful. You're probably not in the phase you wanted to be at. Mm. So you finally get where you wanted to be and suddenly it's less interesting. Ah, uh, that's interesting. And sure. that's where, you know, even as where we are now, like I started a little bit more like reaching out to other startups and seeing where I can help more uh, and being involved with our startup stuff um, because my company is not really a startup anymore. It's mm-hmm. a small business that would like to be a bigger small business and mm-hmm. maybe even a medium-sized business someday. Yep. Um, like we're not going to be a big business. There is no billion-dollar screenwriting software company. Okay. I don't think we'll be the first. <laughs> um, were your parents supportive of this, of your journey the entire time? Assuming they're listening. My, my, my dad passed away. So my, oh, my, my mom. How old were you when he passed away? I was only five. So I had oh, a, geez. a yeah. weird childhood. We could yeah. do a lot of therapy sessions on yeah, this Yeah, no, my dad died when I was 10, so. Yeah, it's, it's, it changes and like it's, it's hard to like really even think about that question of like what would my life be different about, mm-hmm. but I had a very, very blessed, fortunate life anyway, okay. uh, so I'll take, I'll take the ride I had. Right. Um, and so uh, 
I think my mom was always supportive of it. The funny thing is, my family has a small business. My dad had started it, and then my mom took it over, and I was involved. We were all involved, and I said, I have two what older sisters. What was the industry? Um, manufacturing. So we actually still manufacture toughtraveler.com. Uh, Tough Traveler. Tough Traveler. Toughtraveler.com. It's a manufacturing bags and child, well, it used to be child carriers, now pet carriers uh, to carry your pet around, and oh, uh, cool. luggage, backpacks. Yeah. Uh, it's really great. I have my laptop bag here with me. Um, I've been using, I think I have the same laptop bag for 20 years. So, And it's a tough traveler bag? It is, yeah. Oh, yeah. All made in cool. Schenectady, New York. Wow. So they were doing that. And um, I think the, the reason I sort of joke, think about supportive, and she was, my mom was very supportive. She's supportive of everything I do. Uh, I think she would have looked at me and said, wait, you've seen how hard this is. You've seen how awful this is. Why would you do this? Okay. <laughs> I think that was a little bit of it. Like she wanted, she was supportive of it and wanted me to be successful. Yeah. Uh, but I always, I mean, this is a funny line to me. Uh, she always used to say, well, you think this is going to work? And I would say, no, I don't. Like, I hope it will work. I like yeah. it. She would always see it as a, as a sort of statement that you think. She's like, well, then why would you do it if you didn't think it was working? I'm like, the same thing I said before, because it's worth it anyway. Like, uh -huh. it's the thing I have to do anyway. And so I think it was always odd to her, even though she was someone who went through that and still goes through that, of is it going to work or not? Is it a real thing or not? Um, it's a struggle every day, especially if you're manufacturing in the United States. It's very much a struggle every day to, to, to succeed. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, the idea that you're doing something to be successful is, is terrifying to me. Like, you're doing something to do the thing. And if it's successful, is is almost a coincidence, in my opinion. Ah, uh, yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's like a purity to that. But that's actually one of the things I really respect about the tech scene and founders in general, people involved in startups, is they are willing to fail. I mean, most of them, right? I mean, but, and no one really wants that, but they're willing that the failure is a real outcome for a lot of these things. Yeah. And they're willing to fail, but they go for it anyway. What I think the, the flaw of the VC side of things is failure is an expectation there. Um, so in, in VC world, you know, this is the classical thinking, whether they still say this or not, nine out of 10 companies are going to fail. So make sure that your 10th company is, you know, uh, hopefully more, but like a 10 yeah. X to hundred X win. And that pays for the other nine losers. Yeah. And as a human, you really don't want to fail 90% of the time. Yeah. That isn't fun, but the math for an investor works the emotions for a human don't. And there's a note in that the, the one winner in the 10 doesn't actually make that much money often. The, the VC does, but not, not always the original founders. Uh, so the math really doesn't work for uh, most startup people emotionally or even monetarily, I think, when you look at this 90% failure. So while I also, I've never been confident I would succeed, and I think I've often been hopeful uh, mm -hmm. and certain times optimistic, but I don't think, I think maybe now I'm confident, but even now, like, <laughs> I could tell some stories where I'm like, well, it's over. <laughs> I've had some of those recently. Uh, you know, you think that way sometimes, not yep. because you're even right, but just because it's hard to invest so much time into something and, and it takes so long. Mm -hmm. um, but going back to the point, you have to be okay with the failure. Uh, I think you don't want to invest in yourself the same way VCs invest, uh, saying 90% chance of failure, 10% chance of huge success. I think you want to, personally at least, I think you want to invest in yourself as, I'm doing the things for the right reason, and the outcome will be the right outcome based on that. And I don't think you play the odds, you play the I have the right reasons no matter what the outcome is. Yeah, I love, dude, I, that's, that's, dude, that's really strong, man. I love that. You mentioned you didn't take VC money. How did you fund Writer Duet? So in the beginning, it was all, you know, I had some savings. Uh, like I said, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars goes by real fast when you have to pay for tech and, and live on it for years and stuff. So I was 
living pretty cheap. And I made it a while with that money, which is really, again, you know, I got that from, from working in tech for a while and doing a pretty good job. So making money is a huge advantage early. If you're thinking about starting something, man, I've seen people who started with a little bit of savings and it goes fast. And what do you do then? Cause do you give up you then, then everything's gone. Do you start working part time? Like it's just, it's such a hard game. So I don't want, I would never encourage people to delay their startup, but I would encourage them to think very concretely about how this is going to work and do that math where you're like, you know, multiply several factors of, mm. of fuck ups, mm. um, be prepared. So I had all this money that helped, uh, really did immensely. Um, and so once, that started to get low and that did happen. Um, I had just turned on the faucet of, of getting people to pay for it. So two and a half years of nothing in the read through world, a year and maybe a half of writer duet being completely free. So four years in, I finally started charging people. And I built the whole thing myself with a little bit of contract labor in the middle, which was again, super helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, but I built it and that's a huge advantage as well. If you aren't capable of building it yourself and don't happen to have the right co-founder, I don't know what I would have done because, man, uh, I got some thoughts on hiring, too. It's really hard to hire, uh, and I will not say I'm perfect at it in any ways, but I can say there are things that we do better now than we've done in the past. Ah. Uh, and going back to the point, though, uh, I funded it myself until finally we turned the faucet on on payments. I was super psyched the day, the month, I guess, when we launched it. We we as me at the time, but I, we as a company made more money than we spent on servers that month. I was like, yes, nice. You it. The first month, first month or so. Nice. So I was super yeah. jazzed. Like I said, I, I think I take home some money this month. Like oh, probably, probably made cool. a few hundred bucks. Yeah. Uh, and then it kept growing from there a little bit. So by the end of the first, I guess this was 2014. So probably that, that 2014 year we'd launched in the middle, uh, paid version, Probably for the year we were like we again me, but we uh, were were net positive probably that year mm-hmm. by a thousand bucks, a couple few thousand bucks. Okay. Who knows? Uh, and then the next year, I might have paid myself like a minimum wage salary if you mm-hmm. only assume I work forty hours a week. I yeah. did not, but yeah. maybe I was right right around there the next year. And then the year after that, uh, hired people and, and started okay. actually scaling it up and did get some money. So I, I that up to two thousand seventeen, no investment money. Uh, 2017 got into Techstars in Austin, and that was they gave us twenty thousand dollars. And then uh, my friend, uh, which is why again advantages of knowing the right people and being in the right circles, uh, my friends had sold their company to Google recently uh, and offered to invest. And at first, I had originally said I don't know what I would do with your money because I hadn't, you know, didn't have huge scaling plans and wasn't hiring at the time. But then got the Techstars. I'm like, okay, I think you know I can use this and leverage that a little bit. So he gave me 100k as well as an mm. angel investor. So I had 120 thousand. Tried to raise more money at the end of Techstars. Wasn't really aggressively trying, but was like seeing if I could, and I couldn't uh, mm-hmm. at the time. And, and that was the right, you know, the right answer. Then down the line, uh, probably two years later, I guess a year and a half ago, I don't remember the exact timing, but um, again tried to raise, and this was the one that could have worked. Uh, I was trying to raise just two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and I raised half of it. Half a uh, hundred from again, angel investor from uh, Stop's company. So he had some money, he liked me, and, and and he had the right bet. I think he was making the calculated bet on this might not be a huge blow up, but I think you'll probably survive. Okay, <laughs> and it's you know, good business, and he liked me, so it's a yeah. good, good combination. Um, and so that one, and then another angel investor from uh, Techstars Network was 25,000, so another 125 all in, so all in 245. Um, I've been trying to raise, like I said, 250 on that round. So I was supposed to get 125 and I just couldn't. Mm. Um, 
I think the story of why I didn't is many faceted and failure ridden, but fundamentally the things that I should have been pitching, I wasn't um, because I was trying to fit into the VC mold at the time. Mm. Even though I was pitching to angel investors, I was trying to tell a story of here is how we are the billion dollar, you know, hundred X year money return. And I, I don't know if they knew that we weren't, but <laughs> we weren't. <laughs> um, so didn't didn't raise uh, the rest of it. And it was actually really bad because I had mapped it out. You know, all the timing was down. I had to raise this by this and, and get this and uh, hired. Even though we knew we didn't have the money, we hired people based on having that money. We're like, nope, we're just going to get it. We're mm. going to get this money. Didn't. Uh, didn't have a good run for a while with like ran up huge credit cards. So I ran, I, I got a new credit card. I got all those zero interest. I could maxed everything out. <laughs> uh, at, the, at the worst point we're at negative. I think we didn't quite make negative a hundred thousand. Um, but basically I had barely done the math pretty well, but we needed $125,000 to do what yep. we wanted to do and we didn't have it. So we instead ran negative a hundred, almost $100,000. And uh, right around that time, things were supposed to turn around, and they did. And mm. so it turned out to right around the, where we wanted them to be. Uh, and so the last, I don't know what it is, nine months of COVID have actually been, and this is very depressing in a world which is not feel the way I feel, but personally been really easy. Like, mm. it's, it's not been that way for most people. But myself, I'm like, hey, so I don't have to drive to work anymore. That's cool. Uh I can, you know, do my social life the way I like to do it, which is anti. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I just sort of sat around. not have much of one. <laughs> yeah. Sat around and played with my dogs. Um, it's been a good run. And that, and also coincidentally, not because of COVID, but, you know, the business was starting to get to a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the PPP loan realistically was, a, you know, a factor. Like those oh, things good. that hell happened. Yeah. Like that, that's a real easy way to, not be in the same situation you were in the day before. Um, true. So yeah. things like that all, you know, COVID did impact our business in, in some negative ways. Like people had less money. You can actually see changes in behavior of our users. Mm. Uh, but fundamentally, the business was going in a good direction and it kept doing that. And and again, not to in any way glorify this experience because it's been sucky. But uh, from an entrepreneur's perspective, things changing is good. Like, mm-hmm. Dynamics in the world changing lets new ideas come into fruition. It's bad for people who like the way things were. Uh, and that's sucky because most people like the way things are. That is very true. Uh, yeah. So like in that sense, you know, you, you see patterns and you get to do things. You get to hire people you couldn't have hired before. Uh, and it's sad for them initially, but then they love their job at Writer Duet. Yeah. So uh, we have people like that where we thought, man, we're like everyone we hire is is brilliant now. Like mm. it was amazing. Just, you know, and a shout out to all the Employees are listening, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's true. Like you, you get new opportunities every time there is a fundamental shakeup. And the worst thing you can do is try to f- play by the old rules in the yes. new environment. Yes. So, so Writer Duet has W two employees. Oh yeah, yeah. We've okay. had them for a while, and, and okay. we did that from the beginning. I don't know that this is like the right way or anything, but I was always scared of contractors for two reasons. One is. Like you know, legally, you want to be. That's right. Uh, you think you want to play everything on the right side of things. I'm a very like. If I could do over, first thing you do, hire a lawyer. Second thing you do, hire an accountant. Like get those. I've learned that lesson weekend. as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like we did, and you know, cleaned everything up after years of things. But the employee stuff, we tried to do right because it, it does cost more. It takes mental energy and time to do everything with employees. But uh, first of all, it's good for them. It's good for everybody on, on the employee side. And I think going back to the point of it's not about success or failure. It's about doing things right along the way. That's part of it. Like mm-hmm. you know. You want employees who are bought into your thing. 
and again, you can you can do it with. I'm not trying to you know shame contractors right. in right. any way, and maybe we'll There's have a right way to do it with contractors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so yeah. what I wanted was people who were were all in running this with me. They weren't going to be exactly co-founders just timing wise, but uh, they've you know felt like that a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And so we hired them. You know, since 2016, we've had actual employees, and uh, it's not big. Like we have you know, uh, including myself, 12 full time right now. So it's not okay. big, but. Yeah. Um, Having those people it makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah, they're all working from their homes right now as well. Yeah. Okay. And you just, you know, just communicate through what carrier pigeon mostly. We just send carrier. Yeah. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> we send a <laughs> uh, No, we we so in in that way again. Not to say that there's a right or wrong way. The things that we've done well with it. Uh, we have daily stand-ups, which at first were okay. supposed to be informational, like here's what I'm doing today. And after a while of this, we're like, this is so boring. Um, yeah. And we just now have 30 minutes. We just hang out and talk about whatever people feel like, just like you would nice. in an office uh, okay. in the morning. You don't what have do to you use for that? Do you use Zoom or what do you use? Uh, we just use Google Hangouts, yeah. Oh, okay. Like, yep. meet, meet's pretty good. Like yep. For us, the main thing with these is to, like especially because so many, you get meeting burnout faster when it's online um, yes. than you do if you just hang out with another human in the office. And we've gone through the phases where we had like a lot of meetings because we had to keep you on the same page. You don't accidentally learn things anymore. You have to be very intentional about it. And that was also a lesson with it is like you get away with assuming people learn through osmosis uh, in the office environment when they're in around yes. you, but you don't get to do that. You, 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 there's almost the advantage of, you know, that's not happening. So you have to be intentional about it. And sometimes you realize, Oh, it wasn't happening in the office either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that part's been good. Like being pretty more intentional, not perfect at all, but mm-hmm. more intentional about wh- how to spread information, documenting things, keeping people on the same page. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in terms of meetings, having those uh, uh, stand-ups is a good way to, just, again, it's hanging out. It's not like reporting what you're doing. Sometimes there will be an awesome topic and we'll dive into something very intense for 30 minutes. But uh, that's, you know, it's, it's meant to be open-ended mostly. Yes. And then the other meetings, we try to reduce as much as possible at this point. Like we probably, they're team-specific meetings. Like we have our support team that does their, you know, their, their super team meeting and that's awesome. And they just have their like, I think it's half hour sessions and then they have a half hour to an hour. Uh, they call it Ticket Smash where they just go in like, end of the day, every open ticket, mm. they just like knock them out. Like, okay. Just kill everything yep. for the day. And they have those official meetings. Um, but other than that, we got like one-on-ones we do every couple weeks and leadership meeting we do every week. And uh, we have something called story time where we talk about our stories for the quarter okay um personal or or, or at work or either so they're they're really if you, in the conventional thing the rocks like okrs and stuff okay, like that yeah, to keep up, those kind of things yep. um but uh you know because we're a screenwriting company but also just because we're arts artistic uh right. we call our stories for the quarter yeah uh, uh so we have story time yeah. we to hang out and talk <laughs> about those things um is the do you have a pretty flat organization or do you have of the 12 do they all kind of just report to you or do you have a uh, kind of a tiered structure it's tiered somewhat by accident um it's, it's really good the way it is but we have a rule of thumb at writer duet you know yeah you're hired for a job but beyond that first thing you're hired for you get the job you're doing um so you don't get promoted because you want something or you think you'd be good at something you get promoted because you're already doing the job so we might as well give you the title kind Ooh, of thing oh i like that yeah, uh, it, it, there's, a, there's a term, the Peter principle, where people keep getting promoted until they finally can't do a job and then they stay there forever. So you basically have only incompetent people over time mm. because they keep getting promoted until finally they're not successful and then they stop getting promoted. Uh, yeah. So to avoid that, our rule of thumb is if you're interested in something, 
try it. Like we were very structured or we at least offer the opportunity to be structured about that. Like for example, someone's interested uh, right now in project management and we really don't do project management and that's a weakness in our company. We've tried it at different times. You don't have a project manager and whether or not she ever wants to be a project manager, we don't know because she hasn't done the job yet. And so she's playing with it now. She's like trying on some projects to manage mm-hmm. them. And if that goes well, she'll do more projects. And if she still likes it and she's doing well, like at some point we'll say, oh, well, she's the project manager. Yeah, that's uh, I love that idea. Um, you mentioned some learning some things about hiring, hiring along the way. Is there some things now that you kind of have in place that have been beneficial for you to try to hire the right people? Yeah, Um the things that I learned from other sources that I will repeat because I wish I learned them sooner. Uh, hard thing about hard things, the startup book, um, really good book. The rule they have is you can't really hire for a job. You don't at least understand how to do. Um, it doesn't mean you have to personally be good at it, but you have to understand the things that go into being good at it. Yes. And so that's why I kind of said in the beginning, if you don't know a technical person and you're just like, you know, have a cool idea, it's very hard to hire that role if you're not technical because you don't know, Sure. And you know, you can look at a resume, you can see the things they make, but you don't know what's going to make someone successful at your company at that thing. And so it's, I don't know the answer. Boy, I wish I knew how to do it when you don't. I know that it's so hard to do that we just try not to. So the first fundamental thing is if there's like, you know, we we actually don't basically do sales. We have no outbound sales at this point. Um, It's all, you know, word of mouth and organic stuff. And we tried to do a little bit, but at one point, this years ago, we sort of had a uh, on contracts. It was it didn't didn't work out. It was it wasn't too bad, but it was we had a person who was like going to do sales, and it turns out we just you know he was probably very good at sales, but we didn't know how to do sales for our company, mm. and uh, we had different times. I'm not going to in any way uh, shout out the person we hired who who wasn't a good fit. I'm not going to do that, mm-hmm. but he, you know because again that guy he he knows like it just didn't work out monetarily for him. Um, where mm-hmm. wasn't, wasn't making him any sales, uh, but. If you say, wow, that person is a great X and you bring them in, you are only, you know, there's a very small percent chance that they're great X at your company. Mm -hmm. If you determine, man, the thing we're missing is this specific skill set because every time we try to do, you know, project management or whatever, uh, what turns out our weakness in project management historically has been uh, not understanding what really needs to get done so people can lie to you. Um, That's something we learned mattered. Um, not lie to you intentionally, but like when you don't really understand the thing that's happening, it's very easy to be told, oh, yeah, I'll be done tomorrow and believe that person. And they believe yeah. that I'll be done tomorrow. But when you really ask questions, what we found out in our, our experience is when you ask questions about like, well, what has been done, what still has to be done. And you listen, what I found as a pattern is you at some point hear, well, it sounds like you're halfway through and you've done about a fifth of the things that need to be done yeah. and stuff like that. You know, so, so it is an example. Um, understanding the specifics of what are happening is important for us. That might not be true everywhere else, but the way that we operate, that's been pretty important. Um, being on top of it, like tracking the actual progress instead of just saying, well, they said it would be done on Tuesday, so I'll just wait and ask them on Tuesday, is it done? Mm-hmm. Like things like that are specific to us. And again, they could be common patterns, but there there, there are any number of those. And uh, on the technical side, we've hired you know quite a few programmers over the time. Not that many people are still at our company. Um, we have right now, we've, you know, <laughs> fewer than half the programmers I've hired are, are currently there, I think. Mm. Um, but for example, we just hired a programmer who, um, is doing great. Uh, and most of his job is not coding because Mm -hmm. we realized the problem we had wasn't 
we're not building enough things. It's we're building things and no one really remembers how they work. And when someone else needs to work with on them, they're, you know, either have to relearn the whole thing or they rewrite it because they think the whole way it was done was terrible. Or, um, you know, if the person leaves, then, then there's a really dead, dead place. Uh, so we realized we hired a, uh, you know, computer science degree, a great person, a great person, um, who probably could code really effectively, but like mm-hmm. the thing we need today at our company is someone who understands the technology, learns it and documents and explains it for the next X number of people we're going to ah, hire. Sure. Um, so yeah. it was very like targeted rather than just saying, well, you seem like you can code. Right. Yes. And all right. So can you explain what writer duet is then and just talk a little bit about kind of where the company stands now so you have a dozen team members it sounds like you're cash flowing right things are things are decent things are going going well for you now and then talk a little bit about what writer duet does and the problem it's solving yeah so right Duet, 12 employees right now include myself uh, we're cash flow positive which is a very nice place to be uh doesn't mean profitable it means though that money goes up which right. is uh, nice <laughs> um so uh what we do we do like when I when I originally pitched it, I would say we are real time collaborative screenwriting software, meaning we're for writing movie scripts and TV scripts and in video games as well, uh, and specifically focused on real time collaboration. That was the unique value prop we offered. Uh, what I think has been true, you know, different people would probably run it differently. Is real time collaboration is not the fundamental feature that makes our product successful. It is a feature that gets people to care that you exist, um, but the feature that makes us successful is we understand and empathize and care about the entire process it takes from idea through hopefully finished product through actual many iterations of that finished product. Um, And so it's a screenwriting software that wants the writer to succeed. Like that's what I kind of think of it more as. Mm -hmm. What are the things that block people from succeeding is the next question. One of them is lack of collaboration. They're co-writing. It's really hard to co-write if you're emailing straight back and forth or doing screen share or whatever. You can't just both write really freely. Uh, So that's one of the problems. Um, But what are the other things that make people stop succeeding? Well, one is, you know, as an example, um, not getting feedback. If you have written something and you feel like you're shouting into the void, it's really easy to get discouraged about the writing process. And even if you're a professional, the same thing, you know, you still have the same, I've, for, for many professionals who, who still have the same uh, fears about their scripts each time, like, is this good? Have I, have, have I, have I a writer? Right. Uh, and usually the answer is at the time, no, because most things are bad when you first write them until you go through those iterations. So we're like, well, what is the, the, the next part of the screenwriting process is getting that feedback and getting the iteration. So we launched the second product just recently um, that helps people share the script faster, get it read, get com- comments and stuff. And what we're not is a platform for, uh, sorry, we're not as a social network. We mm-hmm. don't like match you with your screenwriting peers at this mm-hmm. point. They're not, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think we're particularly interested or good at that, yeah. but we are a place that helps you technologically get feedback and structure that. So it, it's really that we're a place that is very aggressive about what blocks writers from writing and being successful. Yeah. And you have very successful screenwriters using your platform. And you're seeing so you know so this is one question I had for you is what are the successful screenwriters? What are some of those common denominators? Uh, they're smart. These trees are software. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I think there's the two parts that are important, and this is probably in any uh, startup. Uh, they're willing to take somewhat of a risk, right? They they don't have to follow the same rules as everyone else follows. Um, and in some ways, that's actually more true of the professionals than the amateurs. The amateurs are a little bit scared to try something new because they're told by you know the gods on high that you have to use another program to be a professional. 
And for those people, it's a little scarier to try something new versus professionals like, no, we kind of just know if we write good stuff, people will read it no matter how we did it. Okay. And so I think that the being willing to take a risk is a fundamental thing of any you know new uh, software or new anything uh, product. So you find people, and this is a great book. Um, it's very, very boring, but it's a good book anyway, called Crossing the Chasm, mm. which talks about the phases of customers. And um, what's really interesting about it is there's that, uh, the word I think they use are innovators are the first round of people who just like want to try new things no matter what. And those people are great. You will get them. You can't avoid those people. We got those for read through even. So I know those okay. people don't mean that much, but they're awesome. Like yeah. they're like, Hey, new, I'll try that. I'll give you notes. Right. Uh, and they're great. They, they usually are your basically product testers in the beginning. Like I had, <laughs> it's terrible. I did this, but I had so many days I'm like, well, I'm going to launch this feature early enough in the day that when it breaks, I'll have time to fix it before a lot of people notice. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, in the beginning, because you, you can't be perfect in the beginning. Like I said, yeah. in the beginning, just, you know, delete everyone's apostrophes and see what happens. Yeah. Um, so in the beginning, like there was that like innovator style of person who was willing to take the risk, take the ride with you and wanted to take the ride with you would be, mm-hmm. un, would be mad if they couldn't because they wanted to try the thing before it was ready because yep. um, they want to shape it. And, and was, those people are great. And you have to take those people and, and you, you get them if you're at all interesting. And then there's, I think they call them the early adopters might be the next phase, which are the people who basically listen to the innovators. So the innovators are like, this is good. And then the early adopters are like, huh, the smart person says this is good. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll try this. And those people are usually not necessarily the technologically advanced people, but they always are looking for an edge. They're saying, well, I want to try the next good thing. I don't want to necessarily debug it for them, but I would like to be there when it started and be ahead and gain an advantage from that. And those people, I'm going to again say you can get fairly easily. Like I would say we had those people starting to join our site, certainly within the first months. Um, oh, okay. Like innovators, yeah. innovators yeah. day one, you know, you get those people, but the early adopters figured out pretty fast. Like, you know, we were <laughs> talked about in a podcast. The way I got on this podcast was I just bought, tweeted at this professional screener like three times over the course of a few months. And we didn't, you know, he never wrote back, but one time he did talk about us on his podcast. And that, oh, nice. that got us a huge, like, shout out to Craig Mason. Craig uh, Mason. He, so this is guy. successful screenwriter. Had a podcast, and he mentioned writer duet on his podcast, yeah, and that brought in some some customers. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. probably the most well known screenwriting podcast, especially now. Oh, but wow. even back then, it's called Script Notes, oh, okay. and um, they used to do this thing. I don't think they do as much as such at all anymore. Uh, I'm gonna admit that I don't listen to it right now because I'm yeah. really busy, but I love it. Um, yeah. They do the one thing called One Cool Thing, and okay, at the end, each person, either two professional screenwriters, they say, "What is their one cool thing for the week?" Uh, and we were here with his one cool thing. Oh, oh, that's cool. And what actually yeah. went best about it, I think, is going back to the story of he found some bugs. Like he, it was, I think, it was really slow on Safari if he like loaded the second script and stuff like that. And he was, he literally said in the podcast, like, "Yeah, there's a problem. You know, they'll probably figure it out." He said what the problems were. He shot them out. Yeah, and I literally like. You know, that day that it came out, uh, fixed the bugs, oh, tweeted yeah. at him. And <laughs> the next week, because I had had the bugs, he said, remember I said there was bugs? They fixed them. Oh, Look at wow. them and so if I hadn't had the bugs, I wouldn't have gotten a second shout out. Exactly. <laughs> What's, what also shows how you guys rule, right? Like there was a bug and you fix it. This is a comment. This is a This is a pop, keeps popping up with you. Like you're very focused on the on the user experience and the customer, helping them to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish and just fixing whatever needs to be fixed and creating whatever needs to be created to get that end goal as it should be. That's pretty exceptional, man. I think that's the only thing you have control over. Yeah. Like in this game, like you don't have control over, like where were we going to be on that podcast? It was, it was, he happened to be, you know, nice. And he was probably in his own way, an innovator as well, like interested in the new thing and checking it out and seeing what's going to be ahead for screenwriters. Um, so that part I couldn't control. 
Uh, but I could control that when he found a bug, I fixed it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yes. And so, and then like, even the marketing things, like after that, we never took off. Like still to this day, we haven't taken off. Like if you look at our growth, like, yeah, it's pretty, you know, it's exponential, but it's not a crazy exponential. It's mm-hmm. an exponential that if you look at it, it says, well, I'm sure there's a hockey stick thing somewhere. Like I'm yeah. sure eventually <laughs> it'll do it. Uh, but uh, it's been that grind. So uh, I no longer remember the point of the story, but I remember it was good. Yeah, no, it was good. Uh, yeah, you were talking about some past experiences on there. And I wanted to ask with screenwriting, this is for what? Plays? Movies? Correct, yeah. So uh, um, What else? Video games. Um, that's one of the spaces that we... It, it's a small... like Monetarily, it's almost, I think, a bigger market now. Video games are probably bigger than movies and TV in terms of worldwide revenue. Um, but it's smaller in terms of uh, you know quite how many are being produced that have uh, this kind of narrative component. Mm-hmm. So... You know, video games could be as simple as like a mobile app where you just tap the button real fast uh, and those you don't need to write a very complicated script for. Right. But now some of the movie, uh, movies, video games coming out are basically cinematic movies that you play. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're eight-hour movies where you get to choose parts of it. You impact the you know, scene order, the dialogue, the content. And there, in some cases, there's huge exponential numbers of variants. So like uh, Netflix did a, this is not really a game, it's a show, but Bandersnatch was their choose-your-own-adventure style uh, m- movie, I don't know, show, whatever it was, uh, art form. Um, and video games aren't quite that level necessarily, but they have a lot of that in terms of the gameplay controls the movie you're watching to a degree. Like you're watching actual cinematic cuts, there's real dialogue, there are real characters that you care about that have arcs. Okay. And that's the genre, whether that's the next big genre or not, like it's already a big genre, so it's not next. But mm-hmm. um, whether that's like the keeps of keeps growing or not, I don't know, but uh, I love playing in that space because two things are cool about those people. Um, and uh, you know, I love all our writers equally, mm-hmm. but uh, the one thing is they're already techie, so they're mm-hmm. already in the tech game. So they're still they're screenwriters. Mm-hmm. They're they're often from coming from the ranks of movie and TV writers, uh, but they're in the tech space. Um, and the movies and TV like. I think movies and TV in some way under undervalue the writing. It's, it's less true in TV, especially, and, and probably become less true in movies. And it's funny to say this. I don't think video games overvalue the writing or, or even correctly value the writing either. But they they get it because the writers are in there with the game writers the whole time. The whole it's, it's a very co- collaborative experience versus oh. a lot of times in a movie, uh, a movie more than TV, you'll see someone writes a movie script takes years for it to get somewhere and finally, you know, they're ready to do it. And then there are rewrites and there's all that stuff, but the writing, the bulk of the work already happened. Yes. And in video games, the bulk of the work is happening in parallel with the game development. So they're part of the team. And so there's more value on that side. Okay. So like the, I, I, I don't know many video games don't play many at all. The one I'm most familiar with or have seen played the most is uh, call of duty black ops. Was that, would that take screenwriting or no? I I don't know. I don't play very much myself either, but I think it did. I think there's a storyline to it. I think there's an arc. I don't remember. I don't know the game specifically, but I think it has that. I think, um, I think it's red dead redemption is one of the ones that's like the classic example of that. Okay. Um, where they really follow a character's journey an arc i see um and and it's still controlled by the player but if you looked at if you asked the writers they were like we we knew the story we wanted you to play yeah okay gotcha how but how do two people in uh, presumably they're in different states or towns or whatever houses even and they're able to write together through writer duet it's real time but how do you write together? Like, do I write a sentence? You write a sentence. Like, how does this even work? There are a bunch of styles of it, and there is certainly no right style. The ones that I personally ascribe to are two completely different ones. One is the improv actor style, um, where it is 
I say something funny, then you say something funny. And, I, and there's a great story. Of, oh, um, wow. People yeah. do that? Yeah, they're great. And it's probably much less common, but yeah. uh, the original Bill and Ted movie, um, written by the great Ed Solomon, a writer duet user. Love him. Shout out. Nice. Uh, he wrote Bill and Ted basically with his improv partner at the time, just like playing characters that they practiced in improv. And they would just like riff with each other and just wrote it down one time. And no, that was Bill and, the original Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And um, I'm sure they, they would tell you their process is a little different now in the most recent one that came out. But um, but uh, the that's one style where you kind of are there together in the moment, uh, you know, exploring the space, basically, like an improv actor is doing, uh, improv actors. The more common one that I think works really well that I like as well is, the, and, also, and there's a third, which I don't necessarily do, which is um, you outline together, you try to break the story up and you know together in, in collaborative environment, like you just play around, just write, throw down ideas and that's collaborative. That's, you know, just in real time, you're throwing ideas on the paper and it doesn't matter the order the ideas come out because you're not really fleshing it out and you kind of establish what the story is and then you probably set scenes apart. Um, mm-hmm. Say, okay, well, I'm going to go write this scene. You're going to write that scene and then we'll trade at the end of the day oh, kind of thing. So they just go off and it's still pretty collaborative because you're constantly seeing each other's work and editing it but um it's not to the point that uh you're seeing that while you type the letters that's a choice and then i guess the third way is sort of the i'll write a pass and then hand it to you and then you'll edit my of the entire script like like literally riff the entire script out and and, and professionals especially can do that because they're so fast like a professional screener is like yeah the outline is the hard part once you have you know this outline and you generally know what the story is yeah, you just run a 120-page screenplay in a week. Uh, some people are just machines that they can do that. Uh, but those are probably the three most common styles. The reason I like the sort of scene trading one where you're sort of in the moment still with each other is you let the story evolve uh, together and organically where you get to like make your progress and still break away from the outline. You don't have to be so mm-hmm. rigid to it or completely shocked in the third, ver- you know, the mm-hmm. third one where someone raises your strip, like this isn't what I wanted. And the prince like, Oh, like, no, no, it got so cool in the second act. I had to just like yeah. completely go this other direction. I yep. think, I assume when you write that third style, you're more, you know, I'm going to stick to the outline. I see. I yep. assume I don't actually. Okay. So all movies were at one point were like just written by a screenwriter, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's the, Terrible, probably example other than documentaries, obviously. But there's probably a couple examples where they say, "Oh, there was no script." Uh, usually, they're lying when they say there was no script. Yeah. They just mean they didn't like the script. That's probably the more true story there. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are examples where the script was, "Here's the outline and make it funny in the middle when this happens." I think there are uh, a couple okay. examples. You know, good and they, examples. And they leave that to the actor and actress in the director so, and yeah, stuff sure. in the oh, moment. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. That that okay. does happen. There's a lot of improv on set. Like probably some of the more famous lines in movie history have been improved. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of them. I think I think I'm see I'm right about my movie history. Mm-hmm. I think frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn was an improv. Okay. Uh, yeah, getting a thumbs up. Uh, is, so is that true? Yeah. Well, yeah. So there's some really famous moments, and it's because, and I think this is in some ways why writers get undervalued, but why I think they should actually be given more value is a writer's job isn't necessarily to write the dialogue, although they mostly do. The writer's job is to build the world, set the story, set the pacing, give the actors a character such that the actor can take that and know in the moment, this is what I would say. And that's a brilliant actor that does that. But that's like the, you know, art and magic of movies is yes. to give that space. And to, it's collaborative. Movies are the most collaborative medium because if any single person doesn't contribute, you know. And you like the, when you watch the movie, you're like, oh, this sucked. And, and you can just feel that loss. If any actor isn't in the character, if the script wasn't strong, if the director didn't have the right vision, it all breaks it. Like yes. when you watch a movie, people are like, man, I could have written a better script than that. 
probably the script was good. Like there aren't very many untalented professional screenwriters. They're all good. <laughs> like they're all good at that. Okay. It's just one thing didn't sync up. I mean, it doesn't mean the director was bad. It doesn't mean the actor was bad. Like one person, one connection wasn't there. And it's so important that that collaboration happens all the way through to the final. I see. Okay. So what's a good example of like a popular movie that, that you like maybe? Um, I don't know. Popular. One of the movies I've, I've loved is Fight Club for many years. Okay. Fight Club. Yeah. So, so someone, for Fight Club to be a thing, for that to become a movie, someone or someone's, presumably one or two screenwriters, had this sort of this idea, this vision of like, what if we made a movie that had the, like these kind of storylines and this kind of a plot, and we'd have the movie go in this direction and wind up here? Like, that's just so impressive to me. That's that the like a human or two can kind of like just vision this stuff up, like have this dream or this vision for where this storyline could go and write it out. I mean, it just seems so impossible for, for I'm just, this is why I'm not a screenwriter, I guess, but like to have that kind of those thoughts and that vision and to make a story that, that really works. It's so impressive. I, I think the magic is the exact same magic. And why I love screenwriting, I think is the exact same reason I love both technology and startups. Uh, it's the same journey. So, um, the Fight Club coincidentally was based on a book, so that one had a different arc. Um, but obviously, the book was written by you know someone brilliant, exactly. and the screenplay was adapted to become because it's a, such a different medium. You can't just say, "Oh, the book was good, so the movie's going to be good." That's, that's certainly that, not that's true. true. Yeah. Uh, so brilliant steps there, and again, it's a, I'm sure a collaboration. I don't know the exact story of how they collaborated, uh, but I would bet that they worked together at different phases. Um, what makes a movie work is the same thing in a startup. It's an idea, like there's something important that someone has to say about the world or about this character or about, you know, a journey and, or in the startup world, uh, about a problem that exists in their space or a thing that humanity needs or whatever that is. Um, you take that fledgling idea and I think you try things that have to fail. You expect them like a little bit to fail in the beginning, because if they were right from the beginning, they were probably too interesting, too easy to be interesting. Like, the same is true in movie and startups. Like if your first idea in a startup just works, and this is why I so much advocate the build something that sounds good and is totally broken mentality. Yeah. Uh, you put something out there and it was so cut and dry and simple that the first thing you did was perfect. It's very unlikely that anyone's really going to relate to that because you probably just did something very narrow. Uh, when it evolves, and again, going back to the screenwriting world, when you get feedback and you see which parts people are attracted to, when you let inspiration strike, when you go off your outline and try different things, when you get actors who are add value, all those things are true in the startup world too, right? Where you show it to your first customer and if they hate it, that's great data. If they love it and they have things they want to change, that's great data. If they just want to use it that day, that's cool. Mm -hmm. But man, you didn't learn anything. That yeah, was the one time okay. you didn't learn. The only, to me, the only bad thing that can happen, you show it to someone, is like, oh, that's cool, I'll use it. Like, uh, <laughs> like almost anything else, like, oh man, that sucks. Here's yeah. why it sucks. Or this is really, I wish that, you know, not, there are sure, sure other bad versions too, but this sucks, here's why. This is great, but it's missing 20 things I need for this to be useful is great. Yeah. Um, people caring is the most important thing. Like caring enough and uh, the same in anything creative is getting people to not just intellectually tell you what they think about it, but to emotionally engage with the thing you're doing and say, I value this so much that I'm not just going to give you my, you know what I would do? I would do this. And, and those things, like, sure, everyone has ideas. Some of them might be good. Yep. But the ones who are like, well, if you give me this, I can't use it, but boy, do I want to use it. So give me this instead uh, yeah. are the people okay. you're looking for. And I don't know. I think yep. that's true of everyone yep. creation. Yeah. What else are screenwriters good at? 
Like, what I'm sure there's other things you know that they just tend to be good at, or the way they think, or the way they process information, or the way they dream, or whatever. Like, I'm kind of curious. That's it's 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 presumable that there's someone out there that is not a screenwriter that maybe will become one, right? And I'm just kind of curious, like, what you've noticed that good screenwriters are. What else are they good at? Um, as a human skill set, I think good screenwriters are often good listeners um, because not only are they taking in different, because you're representing many perspectives in a good movie usually. So you don't just have one character you have to like, if you're doing improv, um, you're one character and you get to live in their world, you get to be them. And as long as you can deliver a convincing perspective or if you're an actor or whatever, um, then you're good enough for that. If you're a screenwriter, you're speaking for all the characters and you're speaking for all the perspectives in the world and everyone knows the classic bad guy, right? So I'm, I'm evil, so I do something evil and it's boring. The interesting bad guys we all remember are like Thanos and like they care about something. They have a perspective on the world that is different from the heroes. And that is the fundamental battle. The battle is not am I good versus evil? Hopefully, but sometimes it's fun too. Um, It's is my perspective the perspective that will win? Um, And so screenwriters have to be, I think, um, adaptable to different worldviews. They have to listen to the world and they have to empathize with different characters, even the ones they hate. Like you can have a character like, man, if you, I would punch you if you were in front of me, but I'm going to make you the most compelling character in this movie script because your perspective means something mm-hmm. like as is not, I am political and I don't want to make this political, but if you think about, um, obviously the cultural and political divide we have going on always, probably, I don't think this is a novel thing that the U S suddenly first people to have That's political right. disagreements. Like <laughs> I think this is a very well-established world problem for, for history. Uh, if you hate the other side and if you think they're wrong, it's not interesting. You're just going to, you yes. know, be, be uh, uh, what is the word, a uh, sounding board? I don't know. That's not the opposite. Sounding board is Echo chamber. Echo chamber. There yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so a screenwriter, I think more so is required to listen to both sides. As a human being, you can just have your cool liberal friends or your, true. you know, whatever. Uh I, I think I think it's a, it's a political commentary. I think you know you're doing it somewhat right when both sides think you're the other side. Like, man, all my all my conservative yeah, friends think, man, that. what a fucking left wing nut yeah. I am. <laughs> <laughs> all my liberal friends think, like, why the fuck does this Republican not just like he seems nice? Why is he such a jackass? I, don't know. Um, <laughs> I totally agree with that point, and that applies to screenwriting as well. And I could see how it would apply. Now, it also strikes me that they need to be up on kind of the cultural moment, right? They need to kind of know what the masses are interested in, at least in that two or three year or five year block, right? Or even beyond that, I guess, because there's plenty of movies that are sort of timeless, so to speak. I think that's the magic, as you said. So like, it's very dangerous to predict or or try to catch the wave okay. um, because the wave is established after the fact. You realize the okay. wave after it happened, usually. Usually, okay. not always. They're, they're, right. And, and even when you predict the wave, I, I think those people are lucky. Like every, for every Steve Jobs, like maybe he was a genius. Maybe he was just so good that he was 100% right, although obviously not if you look at his career. Um, but most people who try to predict the wave are wrong. And I think mm-hmm. trying to predict all the things that are going to happen when they're going to happen is super, super dangerous. Okay. Uh, I think what works well like you get lucky, you get, you know, writing a Trump piece now is real different than writing a you know, Donald Trump piece 20 years ago versus writing in 20 years. Like they're all different and they're all interesting. Like yep. they're all interesting character pieces. They're probably all interesting human pieces, like whatever that means. Um, so what I think is the most valuable art in screenwriting is a little bit to be in the moment that you're in, 
but have a perspective that is outside of the moment. Like the thing you're trying to say and think about relates to the moment, but it isn't only interesting if you were born in, you know, your year and lived in your zip right. code or whatever. Uh, that one I'm going to say is actually different than startups. I think in startups, uh, you are not, I, I, man, the Uber and stuff like that. For every Uber, there are a million non-Ubers. Yes. Like there are so many who said, you know what's next? Uh, this. And and it's fine. Like you should still play those games because you can create the future. Like you can't, you do create the future clearly. Like someone's doing it. We don't accidentally have innovation. Like it's very mm -hmm. conscious choices. Uh, but overemphasizing that I think is, is bad for multiple reasons. One is everyone else is doing that too. Um, so you're very likely to be in the same game. Like, I don't know the exact timing, but Uber and Lyft started basically the same time. Yes. And there are probably, you know, dozens of others that are at similar times. And so many people were, man, I had this idea right before they did. And I just didn't get it off the ground or VCs didn't get it. Like it doesn't, it's all kind of luck. Like the timing, mm. like it's a good idea with, with the right things. What probably in a startup versus in the timelessness of a thing is it's capturing the moment in a way that solves people's actual human problems. And the human problem is timeless. Like the human problem exactly. of convenience is timeless. Yeah, okay. Human problem of, of relationships is timeless. Yep. Uh, you do have to capture the moment of, well, this is the way people, you know, if you had Uber back when there were chariots, I don't think it was going to work. That's right. Yeah. There's such a thing about being too far out in front. No, no doubt. Um, okay. So screenwriters focusing on the timeless principles of what works and what doesn't, what captures imagination, that's going to be more successful in just trying to catch the next trend, which makes total sense. What, um, you have done some screenwriting. What kind of screenwriting have you done or are you interested in? I have done a lot of bad screenwriting. Um, <laughs> that's been my genre. <laughs> um, I, I have things I like writing in comedy. Uh, my background was improv acting. So oh, I yeah? like being funny. Um, yeah. But uh, basically, I, I think that oh, the classic line about comedy is good comedy is drama heightened. Um, ah. It's you take something that is super, super simple. And you make it extremely dramatic often. So like the Harold and Kumar movies, like I just fucking want a burger. Yeah. Like that was it. But you heighten this to this extreme level uh, to make it life and death yeah. to these characters. Yep. And that's, you know, one version of comedy. I'm sure there are many, yeah. many better or different definitions. But uh, I, like, I like trying to write in that game mm. where like there's something that's so important to these people that makes, you know, it's like a relationship, like romantic stuff. It's so important that I get this date and that I get this, you know, love interest and I make this relationship work. When if you take a step back, you just have a thousand other opportunities for dating, but this one has to be the one. And that's usually yes. what makes it funny. You get this obsession mm. over something becoming true. Uh, so I read about this comedy that I, I still think is, is probably the best thing I've written. Um, it was just like online dating. It was a really generic thing, but it caught a timelessness thing of trying to be someone else. Like mm -hmm. it was trying to, in this case, it was your friends set you up uh, as a fake person. Like they basically make their own profile, but put your, your little bits about you in there and put your name there and then set up a date. And both friends have done this. So you have two people who are pretending to not be themselves to meet someone who isn't the person they thought they were going to meet. And, <laughs> And, what could go wrong? Yeah, and like <laughs> even that one, I actually wrote it so they don't meet until the absolute last possible moment because the entire thing was how to be not yourself on a date. Okay, um, yes. and I thought like yeah, the moment was online dating. Like that's maybe it's still hot. I don't I don't do it anymore, but uh, it was sort of a catching the moment. But it's like time this thing of who are you really and why are you doing any of this? Exactly. Um, yes. But it was comedy because everything was so stupid. Like they were clearly making terrible choices along the way. Mm -hmm. And they knew they were making bad choices, but they had to keep doing them because once you make one bad choice, you have to make the next bad True. choice. And that, is that potentially a movie? 
Uh, it's what was that written for? It's a short. It's a, a short. Okay. It, I think if I ever film it, which I, I hope to, that's the one I think I'll eventually make as far as oh, I probably cool. would. I have another one, which is a parody of, uh, it's called Caviar Tank, mm. parody of Shark Tank, where okay. baby like, like in my worldview, I, I love it. I have a lot of respect for investors. I think the VC model is great when it works. Um, I think a lot of people have made it work and that's great. And it's helped a lot of companies. A lot of companies have done awesome things. And if you want to say the number one thing VC has done is give us a lot of cheap shit. Like all these cheap rideshare things and stuff like that is all funded by venture capital money. It shouldn't exist at the cost we've been getting it for. So I like VC for that reason. Um, but uh, it was basically playing on the idea of what is VC trying to accomplish and the idea of ain't the counter counterpoint of angel investors who in a ideal world are people who would solve the same problem as the entrepreneur. They're just busy. Like, that's what I like to think of angel, as angel investors. Like, man, I wish I could right. solve that, but I'm also doing these other 12 things. So here's my money. Please solve this. Okay, yes. Um, yes. This is actually a classic thing about uh, investors in general, but I hope it's true of angel investors. Um, angel investors should add value to the startup and you have contributions and stuff like that. But they really, in my, in my opinion, you want them to be people who are just as passionate as you are, but they have other things they're doing with their life and they're, or mm -hmm. they don't have the skill set or they don't have the great idea you had or whatever. Um, so uh, again, I forgot why I'm talking about this, but the, the parody was okay. the, one, one angel investor is on the show with a bunch of v, with two VCs and the angel investor is like, well, just try to like be nice and, you know, be, be relatable and be human with them. And then it goes terribly wrong because again, everything has to be heightened. So the VCs become like monstrously nice people, which is also not the right thing to do uh, in the world. But <laughs> I love that. that right? um, if someone would want to like try screenwriting, like someone who has not done this before, they could just sit down and have an idea, have an endpoint where they want to go, create an outline, and then just start writing the narrative. Is that how that would work? Uh, that's certainly the actual writing process. I think the simpler thing to do is if you are passionate about screenwriting, go make a friend who is passionate about screenwriting. Uh, okay. uh, that is yeah. the first thing I would do. If you're okay. like, or not even passionate, forget passionate. You don't need to be passionate about everything. Um, if you're like, you know what would be cool? A movie. Um, go talk to someone else who thinks that would be cool too because it's yes. so lonely. And, and this is why it's not just about, to me, collaboration in real time or even, even just the feedback. It's about the idea of people sharing their struggles and kind of going back to, the, again, the same thing with startup. If you want to start a company, the first thing to do probably isn't to hack at it. It's to find people who empathize with the thing you're doing. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so in the screenwriting world, if you want to write a screenplay, and you're like, you know, I've always had this story I really want to tell. Uh, try telling it to someone. Like, just try verbalizing it. See if you can do mm -hmm. that. Seeing if someone's like, oh, that's cool. You know what would be cool if you did this? That's fine feedback, especially in a story. Like, you're not selling them anything, so it's different than a product. Uh, but what I really want when I'm listening is, Oh man, that would be so. Oh, I want to watch that movie. Yeah, you know, if I, you know, I, I'm looking for the story, and, and that—that's the kind of attraction I, I would hope I would get. Same thing as, man, when can I use your product? Man, when can I watch your movie? Yeah, um, I see. So the same yeah. thing, but but again, if you're just starting out, you don't have to hit that goal. That's that's an aspirational thing. Yeah, but just share your thing because there's there's two points here. There's one which is a funny thing about psychology that I think has been proven out. You are less likely to achieve a goal as soon as you tell people about it. Because when you tell people about it... I've heard this. Yeah, the reason that I think psychologically is you've gotten the dopamine. Someone gave you approval. Oh, yeah, you know, I am great. I am going to do this. And I've seen it happen to myself. I've seen it happen to other people. So there's that... The counterpoint is maybe don't tell people. So I'm not going to... I'm not going to sell one way or the other. The reason I like telling people is 
the, the reason I think that happens is they, they don't actually, the pe- person doesn't actually care if you succeed when you tell them. They just wanted to encourage you because they're nice. And they said something nice and they gave you the thing you wanted, which was uh, humans patting you on the back. And that's yeah. awesome. And, and that's fun even if, even if you don't go at it. Uh, the thing I want to receive from those people is a drive to do it more because they care. So now this person's invested in seeing my movie someday or my TV show or whatever. Like, man, I want to say, like, God, like, I write this script. Like, hey, show me the first draft. Show me the outline. Show me the next thing. And now I have a uh, goal that someone else cares about. Same thing with putting a product out there. Like, I don't want someone to say, good job. You're making a product. Good job. I want someone to say, give me this fucking thing mm. or I can't go on on about exactly, my day. Yes. Uh, you look at that same kind of, and that, that encouragement I don't think is bad. Like, the, the, the version of, uh, I got what I wanted is, is dangerous. So I, I think you, as a human being, you have to realize the difference. Like I'm getting a dopamine hit versus I'm actually getting something to drive me forward. Mm-hmm. I want to also ask you about sort of the business side of the brain versus the creative side of the brain, because you would have to deal with this. I'm sure just yourself as, as like you have this creative side, you are a screenwriter, have done some screenwriting and now you also write a business, but also by nature of your did I just say write a business? <laughs> you, you founded and lead a business, but also by nature of your business, you're seeing like, screenwriters, these creatives do their thing, but I assume they have to sort of handle the business side as well, or, um, or it's just not going to be, you know, successful. So how do, how do you handle that kind of what can seem like polar sides, the creative side versus the business side, or don't you see it that way? And how have you seen other successful people kind of handle those tensions? Uh, I definitely agree. There's a tension. And I think at least for myself, uh, the business side is so much less interesting than the creative side. And this is often what happens to entrepreneurs. So like I kind of mentioned, you hit a phase sometimes where the business is no longer as interesting because you ran out of problems. Like, yes, mm-hmm. there are always problems, but they're the, they're the boring problems. They're the, yes. well, I fucked up my accounting. So yeah. I'm going to do that. <laughs> um, so like those kind of problems aren't really the things that, that excite you on the, on the business side, on the creative side. Um, I, two, two thoughts. One is, I had to learn this. It took me a while to really accept this, that not every human is attracted to the same things. And so for a while, I felt guilty asking other people to do the boring stuff. Because um, mm-hmm. I was like, well, the boring stuff is my job because I'm the founder and I got to suck it up and do the boring stuff. And at some point I realized, and this is a revelation that shouldn't have taken me as long to realize, well, some people don't find that boring. Some people find that really rewarding to just like, do this thing, like have the task, check the box. Yes, that so, is true. So I think there's a magic to finding people who you communicate well with, which is essential. Like sometimes you can't communicate with them because you're you're too far on one side or the other, or just whatever reasons. I don't know what I don't know what makes good communication. That's not my skill set necessarily. Uh, but as an example, right now, um, I've had um, some really great. Uh, they actually all almost all started as like executive assistants. I think I had, uh, at least two. I'm trying to think of another one. Um, who went through that that path? Um, they started as executive assistant just to like, hey, just do the fucking tasks that that need to get done. Uh, and when it was no longer with the company, but she was great, and she wound up doing so many other things at the company because we could communicate about the problems, even if we had a pretty different perspective and a different way of doing things. Um, and then the same thing with the person now, she started as an EA, now she's doing operations in general, and she's doing all this other stuff uh, because. I can just be like, this is stupid. Make it go away and point at my computer screen. And she gets it. And like, she gets yeah. why this is a problem. She gets what I want to achieve here. And she can like do the thing. Um, I realized and this is like a, a kind of mental, not to say problem, but mental characteristic uh, that I can't stand paperwork. 
So as soon as I have to like fill in boxes, I get extreme anxiety oh, about dude, I'm going to fill in the boxes yeah. wrong. I'm going to write the wrong thing. The IRS is going to come to my door. Uh, I've, I've gotten letters from the IRS in the past. Uh, they are <laughs> scary at first. Uh, well, I had one where I said, you owe $30,000. Pay us in two days. Or yeah. I'm like, oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, gotten those. Um, also check your mail. That was a lesson as an entrepreneur. I don't like checking my mail. That IRS letter I got was probably dated three weeks before I received it. <laughs> um, so anyway, the point of the story is that you almost have to have people who have similar communication abilities or understandings of you and the problem, but like the things that you don't necessarily thrive in, um, have strengths that are different from yours. There's a really good book. I love this book, by the way. I, I'll rattle off books if you want. Um, it's called Nine Lies About Work. Uh, and what's fascinating about it is it takes very, very obvious... Not So they take per- common perceptions... And they say really obvious things that prove that clearly no one really thinks this, right? And they're right, you know, and, or maybe people do think it, but when you look at it, you're like, how could this be true? So one of them is this idea of everyone has to be good at the same things. Like everyone has to, you all have to be good communicators. You all have to be good, uh, you know, skill set wise, X or Y, or you all have to be good at being on time and things. I was, I was late to this thing. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> Only but, five minutes, let's be honest. Uh, it wasn't bad. <laughs> but th- th- most people, uh, have strength and strength to them means in this book, uh, things that you're probably good at, but mostly just thrive while doing mm-hmm. like that's a strength to them. So maybe you're not good at computer programming yet, but every time you try coding, you just get really jazzed and that's probably a strength, even if you're not as like good at it. Um, and there are things like that everyone has. Uh, and so the common perception is we all have to normalize. We all have to get good at the same things and we all have to kind of behave the same way to exist in society or it exists in a company, which has things. Uh, what I think the book says was true, and I think we've observed as humans, uh, is people who excel emphasize their strengths and try to cover their weaknesses. Mm. So you find the things you're uniquely good at or, or better than you are at other things, and you spend all your time being coming as good as you can. So the example they use, I think, is uh, Christopher or Christoph Ronaldo, um, a soccer player. And I don't follow soccer, but the way they described him is like the ideal soccer player uh, uses either leg ambidextrously, essentially. They can just go back and forth, left to right, doesn't matter. And that's what makes them super efficient because they can always get the ball to the right side. But this guy, apparently, I think he's left-legged, just only uses his one leg, basically. Like, if mm-hmm. you count the number of times he kicks the ball with one leg or the other, it's basically always the one thing. He's just so much better at that leg, it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, it's so right. fast at that. And so, as an entrepreneur or a screenwriter or whatever you are, um, creatively, find the things that you can do better than anyone else and then find ways of making, in my opinion, the, the weaknesses not really matter. Either cover them by having another person who can do them mm-hmm. or uh, minimize the times you have to do them um, in your day. Like just try to optimize a way, <laughs> it's a bad thing to say, but learning things you don't want to learn, like essentially. Right. Uh, like I have a rule of thumb, like I try to learn very few things, but I try to learn the things that I want to learn. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to go out there and try to like, I learn things that I'm interested in for curiosity, but as a business owner, uh, I have very little time to just learn things that aren't going to be the thing I do every day. Yes. Uh, and so I try not to learn those things. I'm like, Hey, don't even tell me. I, I, I don't want to know the answer. I want to know that you have it under control and what you need. Yes. Yes. I think I've heard Tim Ferriss say before that he sort of switched from learning, um, just because to learning just in time, like learn mm-hmm. what you need to know Yeah. and stick with that because that box is big. Like just yeah. learning what you need to know. That's that takes that takes a lot of time. Learning things just because that you can create a lot of noise. Have it seems to me like you think in terms of principles and you can extract 
you're doing a really good job when extracting principles from your story. Have you always thought this way? Uh, my mother would tell me I'm the most rigid person she's ever known. So yes, probably. Okay. Uh, and it's like, it's the goal of anything I think we do is to do it for the right reason. Like, I think that's how I think as humans, I think in general, very few people are malicious. And when they are malicious, that's still a reason. <laughs> like they have a intent behind it. And so I think for me and, and, and I think most people being successful, uh, you just make sure you're following your intent correctly. You make sure you're mm -hmm. actually doing the thing you intended to do. And like, if I look back and I found out oh, 20 years from now, it turns out screenwriting is the worst thing and it causes, you know, addiction to entertainment. And I ruined the world by this, you know, people do that. I'd be really sad, but I would think, well, the process was the right process anyway. And so I, I try to take the uh, absolute of I'm doing a thing. I'm going to do the thing I want to do. I'm going to come into it with the reasons that I thought were good. And if I ever realize that is the wrong reason or a bad thing, I'll change mm -hmm. because it, I'm not a bad person because I did the wrong thing. And I think that's an acceptance that I wish I had of everybody. So I'm going to not pretend I do, but I think that's a global good thing to acknowledge is do the thing. And as soon as it's the wrong, there's a great line about poker. Um, if you play poker, uh, all the money in the pot is no longer yours. Um, once you push money in, like there's this mm -hmm. perception that, oh, I have to get my money back. It's not yours anymore. It's in the pot. So the same thing with the the principles. If I if they're wrong, I'll change them. Yes. Like I have the reason I'm doing things. As soon as I recognize I'm wrong, like, oh shit, I actually hope they're wrong because I can probably, if, if I turns out anything, and I'm sure there are many things I'm doing that are wrong, as soon as I recognize they're wrong, I'm like, oh, that's why this is all going really poorly. And yes. then I'll change that thing and probably I'll be better off. We actually, at our startup, our company in general, we have this sort of principle of guess on almost everything and hope that you're wrong. Because if you're wrong, that means you don't understand something, which probably explains all your past poor decisions or some of your past poor decisions. And so the reason you have to guess when you're doing this is you have to, if you don't try to predict the future, you will explain why your thought process would have predicted that. So if you see the score on a sports event, you're like, oh yeah, I knew they would have won. Of course, you know, of course that guy had a good game. He's great at player. Um, if you had to predict what was going to happen, you probably wouldn't have said the exact thing that happened and you'd have to rationalize, oh, I thought this thing was true. Turns out it wasn't true. And you have to actually just, you have to, you, you can't justify to yourself how you knew it all along if you said the wrong thing in advance. Right. And so it's a principle of try to guess and predict the outcome. And when it almost inevitably doesn't go the way you think it does, try to think through what was wrong in your brain that explains why you didn't have the outcome you expected. Yes. And so the same thing here, like, I think I take these pretty rigid principles, but I hope uh, that I'm very anxious to change them every time I realize one is wrong. Yes. Love it. Guy Goldstein. Thanks for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks, brother. Thanks so much for having me.